with me now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 8 through 12. Continuing in our series, A Change in Allegiance, where we're looking at what it means to be an exile in the Christian sense. Citizens of the kingdom of God, but sent on mission in the city of Santa Barbara and abroad. Been in the middle of this book, looking at it in depth, and now we're turning a corner as Peter begins to address the church again in a specific way, and I'm just going to start reading in verse 8. I'll just read all the way through. Peter says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that you would be present by your Holy Spirit once again to not only explain through this teaching what your word means, but to apply it by your spirit to our hearts. And we pray that our lives would be changed because of your word. We pray that we would look just a little bit more different than we did coming in here, because your word is powerful to change. Your word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword, as, as, as uh, the author of Hebrews says, it's, it's able to pierce through the deepest part of who we are, our thoughts and our intentions. As Jesus, you prayed to the Father for us, you said, sanctify them now. Make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. So we repeat that prayer together today. May we be made more like you because of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1666, a man by the name of Isaac Newton walked into his home in uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, closed the blinds in his living room, making his living room as dark as possible, and drilled a hole through the wall, allowing a, light, uh, a beam of light to pierce through the darkness of his home. Right in front of the beam, he placed a little prism, stepped uh, step back and watched the effects of it, and was shocked to see, for the first time, that beam of light hitting the prism and then being refracted into a bunch of different colors in the spectrum. And he realized for the first time in that moment that light is not just a single color, it's actually all the colors of the spectrum, and it's only when a prism uh, pulls and pries apart those colors that you can actually see what it's made. But its intention is to be focused into a single solitary beam. If you could take that metaphor and understand it, you understand a little bit about this underlying thread that Peter is trying to express about the church of Jesus Christ. 
is that it's made up, even as we, we've been talking about in chapter two, it's made up of all of these, the, the metaphor that he uses is spiritual stones, bricks, all of these different components, but it is meant to come together into a focused beam. Better together, we could describe the church or its original intent. Now, Peter's been speaking about the church. In chapter two, he spoke about it being a spiritual house, so we, we got a little bit of a glimpse of its nature But now he's going to speak about the relationship of people in the church to one another. Why we are better together. He speaks about how believers are relating to one another. How we relate to people outside the church. And how Christ enables all of those things to happen. Those are the three things I think we're going to pull out of the text right now. But first thing that he says is finally all of you. And then he goes off into a list of virtues. In other words, he's not speaking anymore, uh, uh, in, the, in the weeks prior to this, he was speaking, using examples of what we were calling household codes, right? And he was speaking specifically of how Christians are to interact with non-believers or pagans in relationships in which that Christian feels stuck, right? And so in the first century, there were these examples uh, how the the Christian is to relate to a pagan government, how the Christian uh, is to relate to a a slave owner, or in our day, it might be like a a, a mean employer. Uh, How the Christian wife was the last one is to relate to a, a pagan husband. And as you see, just the gospel sweeping through that land and changing people, it was doing that largely among the marginalized and the impoverished and the poor uh, and the, uh, the, the discriminated against. And so you see this revival taking place among peasants and among the poor and among slaves and among uh, women in that day. And so there was this predicament that came up out of that, right? They found themselves tied inextricably to pagan People. And so Peter wrote all of those things in, in such a way as to say, hey, don't leave. You're a light in a dark place. Stay there. Live excellently. And over time, as he would say in chapter 2, those very people that are ridiculing you and slandering you, they will see by your good deeds. They will look at your good deeds and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so that was that whole section how Christians are to relate in these general ways to pagans. But now he turns a corner and he says, finally, all of you. Now he's speaking not about uh, outsiders or pagans or non-believers, but believers and how we're to relate with one another. And he says things like, have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. This is a list of how we're supposed to treat each other. Now, this would have been Maybe a little easier for them to hear. They would have been a little used to this, at least in comparison to us. In that culture, it was a, a more of a collectivist culture. Uh, they were more prone to community orientation. A, a collectivist culture, you could describe in this way. Uh, it, the highest incentive for motivating a person's behavior in a culture like this is its effect on the community, Right? And so there's still countries and nations like that today. In fact, many of them are like this, collective, where our behavior is determined by how it's going to affect everybody else. We don't live in a culture quite like that. We live in the West where we live in an individualistic culture. 
Uh, but in that day, and in a lot of places around the world now, the highest incentive for motivating behavior is its effect on other people. And so Peter is writing to this group of Christians who already understands that, but the corrective here is, hey, it's actually not the people that you live with, it's not the people that you work with, it's actually this new community that Christ has formed. It's, this, it's the church, this invisible community of fellow believers. That is the group that you should be watching out for. That is the group that should form the highest incentive for how you live your life, how it affects uh, this family that Christ has placed around you. Now, it also confronts us, but maybe in a slightly different way. We live, as I said, in an individualistic culture that informs us. So if for other countries and nations, the highest incentive for how we live is how it affects other people. For us, we could say the highest incentive for how we live is how it affects us. And that trumps kind of everything else. We, we might still care about relationships and community and church, but the highest goal, the highest incentive is really self-referenced. It's self-focused. Now, that's not inherently good or bad, And there's good things and bad things that come out of an individualistic Western culture. Some good things, for example, um, are, I think this is after the Renaissance that this began to, to formulate this individualistic way of thinking, but this actually came, at least in part, from a biblical worldview. In, a, in those ages, uh, it was a community focus. It's all about the community. It's all about other people. But to a fault, it became about who in that community? About the rich and about the powerful and about the privileged. And so uh, when, uh, when people were valuing community, it really went straight to the top. And so out of that, out of that uh, came a biblical worldview that says all life is actually valuable, not just the influential, not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just the privileged. It's actually everybody that's been made in the image of God. They all have the sense of value, and they're important. And out of that came so many good things, whether it's the person who never thought that they had a chance in life that's now being told by someone else, you matter and you have purpose, to all of the social justice movements that are in the world today that focus on trafficking and focus on the poor and focus on the marginalized. All of those things came out of a biblical worldview related to individualism that says, hey, the individual is precious to God. So there are actually good things that came out of it, but there's also, as there often is, bad things that come out of it because it's people we're talking about and people are sinful. Some of the bad things are when we begin to take ourselves and prize ourselves over and at the expense of the communities that we belong to. One writer, Joseph Hellerman, wrote a book called uh, When the Church Was a Family, where he, he basically write, uh, his whole book is essentially the New Testament was written from a family uh, lens, and that's how they understood everything. We understand everything from an individualistic lens. Therefore, this is kind of the point of his book, many of the verses in the New Testament, we read through that lens. We don't even know what Jesus is talking about. Because we read everything about, uh, through the lens of how it affects me and me only. And he goes on to diagnose 
this lens that we view everything through. He says, we in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedent over the well-being of any group, whether it's our church or our biological family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. And this is where it begins to fall apart. When we begin to view ourselves as gods, at the, you know, we begin to uh, consider ourselves more important than anyone else. And we'll love in community, we'll love in the body of Christ, in the church, until it begins to conflict with our own self-interests, and then you're on your own. This is where it becomes a problem, and Peter's words confront us just as deeply as they confronted that first century uh, community in Asia Minor, when he says, all of you have unity of mind. Listen to these words. They're, they're, They're pushing at an element of our culture, have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let's talk about some of these virtues. Unity of mind. Uh, it, whenever you see that, that, that picture of unity in the Bible, it's not the same as uniformity. Got it? It's not being exactly like everybody next to you. Wearing the same clothes, talking the same way, believing all the same uh, minor things. It's not about uniformity. It's about being unified around a common theme despite all of those other smaller differences. It's that theme that pulls us together. It's what enables a building like this or a church uh, or a group of people that come from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic situations, different races, ethnicities, different gender, different everything even uh, varying beliefs, to be able to come together with a single common thing that, that connects them. For us, if we looked at Ephesians, it's the faith. It's the faith that we have in Christ. It is that faith that has been handed down, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite all of these other differences, we are able to be unified around the gospel of Jesus. That means we can go in the same direction, without being uniform. It means we can be different and yet be going in the same direction because we are no longer guided by this individual self-interest. Well, I'm just gonna do whatever is on my heart. Well, all of a sudden, there's this important thing bubbling to the surface. What is God doing in this group? And what's my part to play in that? He goes on to say sympathy. Uh, sympathy is not what uh, you know, I often think of as sympathy, which is more like patri- patronizing or condescend- like a condescending pat on the back, like, oh, you're having a bar- uh, bad day, sorry, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> sympathy here is a lot more involved. It, it really means to enter into someone's pain. When someone is feeling pain, you enter into it, uh, to borrow that, that word picture. It's being with them doing your best to hurt the way that they're hurting, to understand, and not even necessarily to speak words, but to just, to just share in their suffering. A tender heart that, that Paul says, uh, excuse me, Peter says right after, uh, right after brotherly love is uh, really just speaking about compassion. This means compassion. Compassion are those feelings of sympathy that move you into action, Right? 
So you have sympathy and you have compassion. Compassion is sympathy eventually moving into action. A great example of this might be a, a aftermath of what happened last Sunday in Orlando uh, when the shooting happened and there was this public outcry of grief. It was like this solidarity, you know. It was sympathy. It was, uh, it was that uh, the entering into people's pain, people you've never even met before, all over the, the country, saying, we're grieving with you. This is so wrong. This should not be happening. Our hearts hurt for you. There's sympathy. And then there were other people whose sympathy moved them to give blood, right? So there's your, your example of a tender heart, feelings that move to action. Uh, right before that, he brings up brotherly love. That's exactly what it is. The word there is uh, Philadelphos. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this is a particular type of love, right? In the New Testament, there's all sorts of different vignettes of love. There's uh, romantic love, uh, love that's driven by feeling, love that's driven by uh, God, agape love, that divine love. This one is uh, brotherly love, which speaks of a blood bond. So it's not the way that you, uh, if you could put it this way, the way that you treat people is not based on romance or fleeting emotion, but it is, or circumstance, but it's based on a blood bond. That means that even if you disappoint me, even uh, if you uh, do something wrong, or if we have a falling out, or if we have differences of opinion, there's something beneath that. In the same way that you would, uh, you would be much more patient with your brother or sister than maybe you would with a friend. Maybe. Maybe for some of you not. You're like, ah, bad example for me, bro. <laughs> but generally speaking... We, we have a lot uh, longer of a tether with our family because they belong to us. This is the same picture that we're to have with fellow believers, uh, a, a very strong bond. The last one is a humble mind or humility. This is another one that I often uh, misinterpret uh, unintentionally. You know, I used to think of humility as uh, thinking down on myself or pushing myself down, or just, uh, you know, just a classic example, actually one of my pet peeves is whenever you drive into an intersection, and there's, especially in Santa Barbara, you, you drive into the intersection, you stop, and there's some other cars in the intersection, and what happens? Nobody goes, right? Nobody. You don't, they don't, nobody does. And it's like this process, you know, I think it's because people in Santa Barbara are genuinely nice, like, we're really laid back here, sometimes too laid back. And so at an intersection, you pull up, there's someone right there, and you're like, oh, uh, should I go, should you go? I don't know, forward, forward, oh, no, no, you're gonna go? Okay, stop, oh, sorry, I went, okay, you go, no, you go, you go! <laughs> just imagine like when there's four people in the intersection, it's just traffic jam, everybody's too nice. That's not the type of humility that we're talking about in the Bible, you know? <laughs> That's not the same. We're not, we're not talking about never stepping forward or asserting ourselves in any way or taking initiative, uh, nor do we mean uh, the type of humility where we downplay our gifts. We're not talking about, you know, always making fun of ourselves, never or always refusing uh, compliments or things like that. Have you ever heard, uh, have you ever tried to compliment someone and you're like, hey, bro, you, you did such a great job, you know, Fixing my computer or my refrigerator. And they're like, no, it was Jesus, you know. <laughs> it was God, God, <laughs> you know. Oh, really? Should I pay God the bill then? Or I don't, how's this work? 
This isn't the type of humility that we're talking about, where we hide our gifts or our confidence or we act in a self-deprecating manner, like, woe is me, that kind of thing. That's not biblical humility. Biblical humility simply means that we have a healthy view of ourselves in relation to other people, okay? Uh, Another way to put it maybe is that we have a self-awareness, a a healthy self-awareness, and another, other's awareness, right? We have a right view of ourselves and a right view of others. And so when I say self-awareness, you, you have developed a sense not only of the things that you're good at, but the things that you can work on. You have a healthy understanding, like, you know, of the good things in your life, but also, oh, here's where I can grow. Here's where, you know, there's things I can work on. You have a, a balanced view of yourself. It's not too high. You're not like, you know, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm God's gift to humanity, you know? But neither are you, like, extremely down on your, it's a balanced view. Here's things that God has blessed me with. Here's things that I can work on. And that, that, that then pours out into how you treat other people. The social aspect is you are aware of other people and the dynamics in your community, whatever that might be. You are also considerate of other people. You're not just noticing what you're good at and what you can bring to the table, but you're starting to see what other people are good at. And you're being able to call that out. And so that that dynamic, a right view of self and a right view of other people, is really the concept of biblical humility. I'm I'm getting this from a a couple passages in the New Testament. uh, Romans 12.3 is the first one where Paul says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, right? There's that, that self-awareness. Don't think too much of yourself. Don't be self-deprecating, but don't think too highly of yourselves, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. There's that self-awareness, uh, that right view of yourself. But then in Philippians 2, 3, Paul says, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. So there's that, that uh, others reference, right? We are to have a balanced opinion of ourselves so that we can consider other people as more important, so that we can elevate other people in our lives. I want you to begin to uh, imagine a community like that where people aren't self-deprecating and wallowing in their mire, but they're also not completely blown out of proportion. They have a right view of themselves, and that allows them to elevate other people in their lives. And you can imagine a multitude of people doing that in community. This is, this is the essence of a gospel-centered community. Tim Keller, uh, describing this, uh, summarized it in a great way. He said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less, right? If we were to take all of this that Peter is saying, we could summarize it maybe in this way. I'm going to try to rephrase all that Peter has just said, even though he just said a sentence. I'm going to uh, try to simplify it even further by saying Peter, Peter seems to be teaching us that we are to think of ourselves We are to think of ourselves less in order to help others around us realize their full potential. I think that's kind of the the, the angle that Peter is digging at right here as he addresses Christians in a Christian community, to think of ourselves less in order to help those around us realize our full potential. And the church here, you get this picture, 
that it was meant to be an alternative community. That in a world where this doesn't always happen, where people are out for themselves, and there might be a sense of community until that sense, uh, until that sense of community begins to conflict with their self-interests, this is supposed to be an alternative community where we can come into, and I don't just mean on Sunday mornings, but just in our day-to-day life together, whether it's home groups or uh, uh, over meals or in neighborhoods, however that works out, an alternative community where Christians can come and not have to fight for themselves. So we're watching out for each other. The second thing that Peter does is he says, now that you know how to... You have a picture of how to relate to one another. Here's how you relate to those on the outside who might be seeking your harm. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, I just want to sit on that first phrase, don't return evil for evil. Not that everyone in the world does this, but this is a common pattern, Right? someone does wrong to you, you can do wrong towards them. Or even more subtly, it might not even be inadvertently doing evil towards someone, but in your mind, uh, you're, you're cutting those ties off. Or you're, not, you're, you know, you're gonna watch your back around them, or you're, you're just setting up this defense system around yourself. Don't return evil for evil. This alternative community once it involves people outside of the church who might be attacking us in various ways, you know, as the world op- uh, sometimes operates, we are called then to stop the cycle. Have you ever noticed that anytime someone does something to you and you do something back to them out of a vindictive spirit, there's a cycle that begins to start and it's hard to stop after a while. And the silly thing is, I've noticed this in my own life, it can start so simply I've seen this in my own life where someone would say something to me and it was nothing. Like, I, uh, I can't even remember it like years later. But I like hang on to it and I'm like, oh, you know, and I just begin to harbor it and it begins to fester inside of me. And maybe I, you know, maybe I lash out and I say something sarcastic back to them. And then that kind of changes the relationship a little bit. And it begins to continue, and the the vindictive way that I and this person treat one another just begins to get exacerbated, and years down the road, we, we hate each other, and we don't even know why. It's because of this cycle that continues. There, there was a documentary that came out in 2011, kind of an extreme example of what I'm talking about right now, uh, on bare-knuckle fighting in Ireland. And the, the, docu- the person who did the documentary, Ian Palmer, actually spent 10 years following these two families, the Quinn McDonough's, uh, McDonough's and the Joyce family, who were Irish travelers who for decades were fighting one another. And it started like, he's, he's following them around for 10 years, but you know, 40 years prior, Something happened between the two of them, a couple people died, and for decades after decades, they would resolve their differences through bare-knuckle fighting. And over time, it began to exacerbate into where it wasn't just bare-knuckle fighting, but before the fight, they would, they would send each other home videos taunting one another. 
It was like this, it was this crazy commercialized scene, but it's like these, these travelers, these Irish travelers, and they would begin to bet money on them, and it grew into this huge thing, and over and over, and, and they would fight, they would fight for uh, sometimes hours until one of them was knocked out, and then it would be done, and then yet minutes later, they'd start taunting one another, and it would start over and over and over for decades and decades and decades. At one point in the documentary, uh, uh, Ian Palmer asks, uh, is interviewing one of the moms, just an older mom. She's sitting on the couch, just smoking a cigarette, and she's like, I don't even know why these boys are fighting anymore. This is ridiculous. And he's trying to get into their heads, saying, uh, he's saying to one of the fighters, hey, yo, instead of fighting, why don't you just like sit on the couch and like just kind of sort it out? And the guy just laughs, and he's like, this will never be sorted out. 40 years later, fighting and fighting, until at the end, one of the greatest fighters in the bunch decides, I'm sick of this. And he decides to go into another town and visit one of the weddings of one of the rival families. In his words, I'm tired of this, I just want to start building bridges. Now, I'm hoping those aren't the situations that we find ourselves in. But in a similar way, to borrow that kind of, that picture, Peter is calling us, when we are treated this way, as subtle as it might be, as small as it might be, when we are cursed and when we are mistreated, when we are insulted, when people cross us, when we get, uh, uh, when we get cheated to stop the cycle, by blessing those who do wrong, now, in a huge situation like that, it might be going to the uh, wedding. For some of you, it might be a well-placed word. I love the proverb uh, that says uh, in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever just tried that when someone was mad at you? You know that tendency inside us to want to get defensive when people are accusing us? I just want you to try Just try it as hard as it is. Just say, I'm going to try this just one time. As someone is, is coming at you, they're angry, they're mad, and you're just working up a defense, instead of doing that, say something really nice and watch as it diffuses the situation, stopping the cycle. Peter tells us that the way that we do it is by blessing. He got this, I'm pretty sure, from uh, his Lord, Jesus, who's, uh, who would say, I think in the Gospel of Luke, that we are to bless those who curse us and we are not to curse. These are another couple of words that might be uh, hard for uh, us to understand, at least for me. You know, I always used to think of blessing as like saying the word blessing. Like someone sneezes and you're like, God bless you, you know? Or you say a blessing over the meal. Likewise, I'd also always think of cursing as like an expletive or cussing at each other. And that, that kind of gets me off the hook because I'm like, I didn't cuss today, you know? I didn't curse either. But what Peter is speaking about and what Jesus has in mind when they're speaking about blessing and cursing is something more deeply involved in your heart. Blessing and cursing doesn't just merely mean your words, but it's really the posture of your heart towards another person. Blessing, you could put it this way, is the projection of good into the life of another person. It is willing good for them. And this can be as public as going to someone's wedding. It could also be as subtle 
as a raised eyebrow or a smile or a hug. Love this story uh, that John Ortberg tells of this surgeon by the name of uh, Richard Selzer who had to operate on a young gal uh, and he actually had to, he had to cut open her face to remove this large tumor. And he did the best that he possibly could but in the process of the surgery he actually severed uh, a nerve in her face that actually uh, was responsible for some muscle movement and left one side of her face uh, grotesquely disfigured and distorted. And this is the kind of woman uh, who, ha- who was so beautiful that when she walked around, people would just stop and stare at her. This would never happen again. Or it would. People would, st- would stop and stare, but it would be for a different reason. As the story goes, a she, after the operation, she asks the surgeon for a mirror and sells her hands her a mirror and she just looks at herself and she asks him, am I always going to look this way? And he, he says, yeah, it's, it's the nerve. It's the nerve ending. It's gone. She sits there in silence for a few seconds until her husband, her young husband who's sitting right next to her, pipes up and says, I like it. It's kind of cute. And as Ortberg says, as if to tag on an exclamation point, he bends over and kisses her crooked smile. Selzer would later write, I am so close to them, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. To show her that their kiss still works. That's an example of blessing someone. It is willing their good. It is willing them to be well. It is willing them your support. It can be something as wonderful as kissing your bride with a crooked smile. It could be going to the wedding of your enemy, but it could also be just hugging someone. It could be placing a well-timed word. Then there's cursing. Cursing is far more than just cussing at people, although it certainly includes that. It's willing bad in another person's life. It's any time you react to someone in such a way that it puts them down. It's me at the intersection when three people aren't going, waving my hands, going, ah, you don't know how to drive, which I have never done. It can be something as subtle as a a raised eyebrow when I'm talking to my wife, or a sneer. It can be using words in your interactions with people that you love that are unfair, like, you always do this, or you're never that. These are the ways that we curse one another. When you think of it in that way, the vast majority, as not just words or cuss words or the word blessing, but actually the posture of your your heart and soul towards someone, the vast majority of our interactions with other people are either blessing them or cursing them. Everywhere you go and every interaction that you have with people, you are likely blessing them or cursing them, even if it's just thought. Now, it might be easy to bend down and kiss your bride 
in a moment of crisis and distress, but Peter isn't saying to bless your bride right here. He's saying to do this to your enemies. And for some of you, this might sound absolutely impossible. You might be even thinking this in your mind, like, Lazo, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what I've dealt with. You don't know what so-and-so did to me. I just can't do it. You're saying what that fist fighter in Ireland was saying. It'll never be resolved. You don't understand. You don't understand what I've been through and what they've put me through. There's no way. Even if I wanted to, I just couldn't. I couldn't even view them in that way. I can't bless someone that I so deeply hate. It is impossible. Maybe you're saying that right now. Someone in your life or a situation in your life, and you're right. It often is impossible for us to do stuff like that apart from the movement of God on our behalf. People cannot bless other people apart from them being blessed by God in heaven. There was only one person who was able to do this by himself, and he did it perfectly by blessing people who were cursing him. Jesus Christ condescends, steps into our mess and into our drama and into our conflict and into our sin in order to die for people who are living a life that was cursing him. He demonstrated his, lo- his love for us by dying on the cross for sinners. And this life that we see here in Peter is perfectly seen in the way that Jesus treats you and me every day. And regardless of where you are, maybe you're a father, you're here on Father's Day, you're like, I haven't been a good father. Uh, truth be told, I've cursed more than I've blessed. And yet Jesus looks upon you with blessing. Maybe you're a mother and you're like, I have, you know, I've, I've, I've made some mistakes in my life. And yet despite our faithlessness, God remains faithful. He blesses people who curse. Even though our hearts go astray, even though we view people with the wrong lens, even though we mistreat people, even though we're looking out for ourselves, God constantly shows mercy and grace and love. The picture of this is wrapped up most beautifully in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't do it by himself. He then calls his followers into that new type of life by changing us from the inside out. By making us the types of people who, aren't, aren't, who want to bless. You might be the type of person who's like, I could, I, even if I agreed with that, I don't even know if I could do it. Like, I, I don't like people. <laughs> Jesus is the, type of, is the kind of person who can change you to want to bless people who are cursing you. How, think of the level of freedom that that is. To be able to say, I do not have to be pulled down by the way that people treat me. My heart has been set free. Only Christ can bring that type of freedom to your life. And he can make you the type of person whose heart is so free in him that when people curse you, the first thing that comes out is blessing. In fact, when Peter closes this passage... He quotes uh, Psalm 34, 13 through 17 when he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and uh, so on and so forth. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. He is giving us a vignette of that type of person that God wants us and is able to make us become. This means that God actually cares about who you're becoming. 
God cares about who you're becoming, and he intends to make you just like his son. That's why Peter says, for this is what you were called to, that you may obtain a blessing. That word there is in, uh, literally inherit a blessing. It doesn't, mean, uh, it doesn't mean you be a blessing so that God will accept and bless you. You don't earn an inheritance in this case. God gives you an inheritance. He's reminding you of what you've been called to. He's saying, you're, uh, he's saying if I could put it this way, you were created to be a blessing. And your inheritance is a blessing. So walk in that freedom and liberty. Brothers and sisters, this is what you were created for. You were created to be a blessing to everyone around you. Blessed by God so that you can be a blessing. You remember Genesis? When God created uh, Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden, he gave them uh, two, basically two uh, things to do. One, walk with me. Two, extend my kingdom and my space all over the world. And spread my blessing. They rebelled against perhaps one of the greatest jobs that's ever been given to humanity. They rebelled against it. They wanted uh, their own way of doing things. They looked inward. They sinned against God. Sin entered into the world and it's been affecting us this day. How? It has all of a sudden given us a capacity to curse. And everywhere that we curse, we perpetuate that cycle of sin. That cycle of harm and destruction, broken relationships, watching out for our own backs, cutthroat behavior. But we weren't created for that. We were created to be a blessing and to participate in God's kingdom. And so a little bit after that, towards the end of Genesis, this one dude comes in on the scene, Abraham, and God says, if I can paraphrase God, he has sent his purpose with Abraham is to say what... Uh, uh, I am going to take my original design and I am going to uh, uh, start and eventually fulfill it through this one man and his family, Abraham and his family. And he gets into a covenant with Abraham and he says in Genesis 12 two, what does he say? I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. In the New Testament, we see that promise coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. Paul would later say that those who have put their faith in Christ are of the family of Abraham. We have inherited the blessing so that we could spread that blessing. You may say, well, how do I start? Walking in this liberty. The truth is, that only Jesus can take a bunch of refracted sinners and focus them into a single beam of light. You want to know how it's possible for a bunch of curse-natured, broken, sinful people to actually make a difference and to matter in a different sense? It's for them to be unified in mind and heart around a single person. Jesus Christ. And so we're not worshiping ourselves as individuals. We're not even worshiping our community. Like, our community is going to do it. No, we're a broken community. We're a community of individuals that is unified around a great king and Messiah. 
the only one that can take a bunch of messed up, refracted rays of sinful people and focus them into his original design. You want healing and restoration in your life? You want to be a part of a community that heals and restores instead of breaks and curses? Your first course of action is to point your eyes with the rest of us onto the beauty and the redemption and the restoring power of Jesus Christ who came into this life to save sinners like you and me. We're going to continue to do that in a, a different way through singing. And when we sing, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we sing, keep in mind that in singing, we're not just declaring and praising who God is, as we said at the beginning of the service, although we're doing that. Sometimes we're also preaching to ourselves. Sometimes when we mouth true words, for, uh, in some circumstances you might be saying, God is this, or God is faithful, or God is he's singing, God is, uh, God is great. And sometimes you might be experiencing a good life and you really believe it, and you're just exulting in that truth. God, you're wonderful. Other times, maybe it's hard for you to believe that. But you need to sing the words. Not because you're trying to fake it until you make it, but because you need to preach to your own soul. That regardless of how many times you've dropped the ball, God will never drop the ball on you. That's why we worship. Heavenly Father, as we sing today, may you surround this group of people with your love and your goodness. Move. Move our spiritual eyes away from ourselves and even each other to see who you are. And when we're, where we are struggling with faith, I pray that you would give us a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to see and to dream and to imagine what you have in store for us, not just as a church, but as individual people trying to live their lives faithfully for your kingdom. What does that look like? God, would you just begin to start right now cultivating a heart of trust in you. And even though we have failed, and even though we have fallen and stumbled in a variety of ways, even though we have cursed each other and maybe even cursed ourselves in you, you continue to bless and show mercy. God, expand our faith and our trust in who you are. enliven our spirits yet again. In Jesus' name.